Welcome into Weekly Edition. We're joined by Janine Yazzie. She's New Mexico's lead coordinator for the Navajo and Hopi COVID uh, Relief Fund. And uh, to give us an update, I guess, on everything that's happening in the Navajo and Hopi nations. Um, thank you for taking the time, Janine. Thank you. Um, happy to be here. So, uh, I guess, bring us up to speed on, on what's happening. I know it's a story that nationally everybody is paying attention to, but I think many people, especially in New Mexico, feel kind of helpless to, to help. Yeah, well, I know um, when we first started getting spotlighted nationally, um, the focus was on the Navajo Nation and just the um, around the information and data that was being collected that showed that we had one of the highest rates per capita of the spread of this virus. And at that time, um, we were when we first started to gain attention, we we're on third only behind New York and New Jersey. Um, since then, we've become number one. Uh, but in recent weeks, uh, with you know the lack of the appropriate protocols being put in place, the social distancing, and the relaxing of a lot of the um, the state requirements on businesses and uh, and travel. Um, we've become surpassed by the White Mountain Apache tribe and by the rates of the spread in the state of Arizona. But um, I, on the ground here in our communities, uh, one of the things that we're struggling with is that we've never seemed to have reached a peak or a plateau. And now there's this threat with how um, the, the, the virus is now spreading in many areas, and especially on the Arizona side, um, that our cases are just going to continue to grow. And I think we had a lot of faith that with um, the relief efforts and with all of the different uh, strategies that were being employed at the state, county and local level, that we were going to be uh, at a place in this moment where we had sort of control of the spread and where it would be able to like relax a little bit. But unfortunately, that's not so. Well, so one thing I want to hit repeatedly throughout this interview is what can people do to help? Wear masks. Wear okay. masks wherever you go. Um, definitely continue to practice social distancing. There's still a lot of things we do not know about this virus, and to to help our communities. You know, at the at, at, in the beginning when we're when we're really being highlighted because of the spread of the of the virus in our communities, we were receiving a lot of donations, and that's been extremely helpful for our grassroots relief efforts, which aren't hindered by any like government bureaucracy or any of the challenges that tribal governments face when turning resources into action on the ground in a meaningful way. Um, and, and so that allowed us to really flow fluidly and organize quickly to get resources where they needed to go to help support our most vulnerable households. But right now we all need to take care of each other because this virus is everywhere and it's affecting both native and non-native populations at the same rate. And we need people to take this seriously because we still don't understand a lot of things about this. We don't know if people get immunity once they get the virus and come out on the other side um, testing negative. Um, we don't know uh, if, if uh, we're gonna achieve a, a, a state of herd immunity as a result of, of, of those unknowns. Um, 
And so there's just a lot of things that we have to continue to be prepared for. I know we're in the midst of summer, but we also have to start thinking about preparing for how this is going to look in the fall and winter seasons when it's going to be uh, in competition with with the cold and regular flu symptoms. And, um, you know, we, we have been paying very much attention to the, the research that has been out there and the predictions that are out there saying that this is going to get a lot worse in the winter. And so we're going to need to be prepared as communities to have on hand the PPE, the the supplies, the food, the supply chains, uh, everything that is necessary to keep our community safe during, during this very scary pandemic. So the best thing that people can do um, is just keep themselves, do all of the things that people advised is the best way to help the indigenous tribes right now? Yes, and and continue to help uh, support in any way, uh, bringing the necessary resources that our tribes need. I don't know if people have been paying attention um, very much around the politics around the CARES Act, um, but there's still several barriers that the tribes need to need to jump through in order to actually be able to use the funding that has supposedly been made available to our tribal nations to deal with this, along with like a lot of questions about what is qualifiable for un, uh, under the uh, parameters that have been set by for qualifiable expenses through the CARES Act. And so some of the things that um, everyone can kind of, you know, anyone who knows anything about how this virus has worked, like what are the, the socioeconomic and uh, other conditions that have led to the vulnerabilities of indigenous peoples, um, everyone who has that like a, a basic level of consciousness around those issues knows how important water infrastructure is and access to clean drinking water. But right now it's really uh, up in the air. There's no deter- clear determination whether or not we can actually use the CARES funding to get access to clean drinking water to our communities. And so this is where it's going to be really important for our communities to advocate together for either state or our federal policy change that recognizes one, that water is a human right and everyone should have access to clean drinking water to keep all of our communities safe. Um, But that we really look at how do we support the building of critical community infrastructure that not only would help indigenous nations, but would help a lot of our rural communities that uh, live under the same restrictions and conditions when it comes to lack of community infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the the um, ways that cities and urban areas have been able to um, uh, continue like educational advancement or continue employment has been through the ability to access broadband networks and broadband services so that people could work, uh, um, shift their work to home, do a lot of distance learning. Children can still have access to educational materials and continue to advance in their educational development um, with access to Internet. And in our rural communities as a whole across New Mexico, um, uh, the uh, rural communities, both native and non-native, don't have access to, to the broadband infrastructure that's necessary for this. And so there's a lot of things we can do together to improve access across the board for indigenous and non-indigenous nations. And I think that that's where we would be most effective in advocating for the type of change and investments and resources that can help build resiliency for all of our communities. Take me through the factors that have made it so hard hit on tribal lands for the the effects of COVID. 
<laughs> in the next five minutes. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, and that's the, that's the beauty of this is, is that, um, you know, it's when you read stories, when you're um, watching news clips, you're looking at these three second sound bites. And one thing that we've heard consistently is about the multi-generational homes. But uh, the beauty of a program like this is that uh, I'd love to take them one by one. I'd really love to learn about it. Well, multi-generational homes are definitely a factor, um, but also just the way that uh, economic development has been stimulated for generations in order to promote uh, unhealthy dependency on extractive uh, extractive industries, um, and as well as to um, continue the process of assimilating indigenous peoples into um, privatize like the process of privatizing land and using it as collateral for development, those things come in direct conflict with our traditional ways of owning and managing our territories, but also in the ways that we look at building sustainable economies, which is through communal uh, land stewardship, communal resource stewardship, um, and promoting food, food sovereignty for food secure, as a basis for food security and water security and there's been layers of genera- <laughs> generational bureaucracy and uh, jurisdictional authorities that have prevented indigenous peoples from truly exercising so- the sovereignty necessary to uh, build the foundation for sustainable and resilient communities because of this agenda to assimilate us into a corporate capitalist economy that is in direct conflict with our values as indigenous peoples, but also in um, it is is practically impossible when you look at um, the conditions on the reservations and the the ways of um, the ways that our communities are spread out, um, and and just like the costs that it would incur to build the type of economic infrastructure to turn our reservation into more ur- urban um, urban development like areas and that's not what our people want our people our people don't want to privatize our land our people don't want to sell off parcels of our land in order to get collateral from banks we want to be able to live off of the land in the ways that our communities have always been able to do to produce our own foods to restore our traditional food systems to be able to restore and maintain our springs our groundwater resources and our surface water resources um, because our communities never suffered from food insecurity. We never suffered from water insecurity prior to uh, all of the the environmental contamination that has been brought to our lands by by these extractive industries and prior to these these guidelines and these policies and these regulations that have been imposed upon our our lands and our communities that prevent those types of uh, communal land management practices. And so like the, 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 the conditions of settler colonialism created by settler colonialism and just the history of marginalizing and, and preventing the true exercise of tribal sovereignty is why we're dealing with such great social economic conditions that have led to endemic poverty and have led to all of these um, challenges and barriers that we face for building sustainable and resilient societies. And if people could um, 
understand that history. Uh, it would help us understand a lot more the direction we need to go as a society to support and build alternative forms of development um, that that can that are more sustainable and resilient for everybody. Um, you know, it, it's been a really ch- a big challenge with all of the national attention that has been turned towards the Navajo Nation early on, um, and, and and several of the pueblos in New Mexico, uh, because we've had the experience before that with ignoring the historical contexts that have led to the vulnerabilities that our communities face. Um, the type of uh, um, narrative that gets developed is very much steeped in poverty porn. It's very much steeped in uh, reinforcing harmful biases and assumptions about indigenous peoples. And it leads to increase um, um, uh, episodes and, and acts of racism towards people who look like they're from indigenous of indigenous descent. And we're seeing this right now with what happened in New Mexico with the Loveless Hospital and the way that they instituted a hospital policy that led to several mothers being separated from their newborn babies at a very critical moment after birth simply because they presented indigenous and because they were they were targeted for um, COVID testing um, based on the zip code of where they came from. And those types of practices very much stir our, our historical memory and generations of historical trauma for how indigenous peoples end up being targeted when, um, when, when, when uh, information and data about how uh, our communities are uniquely impacted by certain things, especially by disease and pandemics, um, aren't properly contextualized in the the historical context that have led to these conditions. Um, and so with, with what the Pueblos are experiencing, um, you know, they have a, a, a lot of right to be wary about how information is being shared, um, at, like highlighting the hot spots within our nations um, without really really telling the true story that this is a worldwide pandemic, that the reason why this is hitting places harder than others is usually rooted in social economic factors that are deeply steeped in racist, assimilative, and settler colonial policies to control particular populations of people. And if we can't name that and we can't address that in the midst of this pandemic, we're not going to do enough to uh, uh, um, help bring the resources and the critical infrastructure investments that are necessary to prevent this in in the future and to uh, address the growing inequalities between poor, impoverished, um, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color communities um, that are hit particularly hard, whether they're in urban or rural areas. And so I'm hoping that you know, now that this is, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I'm sad that this it had to be this way, but now that it's spreading more and in cities in Arizona, I'm hoping this wakes people up to, to the fact that um, had we been on top of this and had we been accurately 
addressing how social economic conditions played a part in certain communities being hit harder than others, uh, that people would have been more prepared to deal with the severity of this pandemic. And we wouldn't have had to deal with like this new rise in cases from premature actions that lifted um, social distancing requirements and restrictions before we got a hold on the spread of this virus. We're speaking with Janine Yazzie. She's the New Mexico lead coordinator for the Navajo and Hopi COVID relief fund. So uh, the historic factors are why we're here. And we have seen that uh, the African-American uh, mortality rate for COVID is is wildly higher than it is for everyone else. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we bring relief? How, what is the best way forward for the nations? Uh, I think we need to address head on um, the systemic inequalities in our educational health care and, and just our entire public social safety network. Um, this is a chance for, for really transforming um, through policy initiatives um, the way resources are invested in our communities and the way um, certain conditions are addressed and prioritized uh, to ensure equity in access to education and appropriate health care for all peoples. Um, you know, this pandemic's a wake-up call. It could have been in the beginning of this, people were talking about how, oh, this is the equalizer and in a lot of places, it was recognized that exposure to this virus was only going to really impact um, <clears throat> people of a certain social economic class, people who were able to travel or who worked internationally and who traveled a lot for work. Um, but what, what we've seen is that although those were the populations that were hit first, and I think the only community that really did a very great um, uh, um, um, research project on, on sort of uh, di- delving into this data has been out of L.A. Um, there's this wonderful website where they show that the virus did come into LA and in um, counties and in areas that are were of a middle to upper upper class income level. But once it spread to the, the lower so, uh, socioeconomic neighborhoods, um, that's where it ended up spreading like wildfire. And that was one of the, the only uh, cases where I saw them really looking at the data and real time and tracking the data in real time to understand how the virus spreads and then um, permeates um, based on socioeconomic conditions um, and and really getting a foothold in poor neighborhoods that are often also um, neighborhoods that are predominantly populated by people of color. And if we did that same thing here, I'm sure we would see the same patterns. Uh, and, and then it would be much clearer. Like everyone's always asking, how did this spread so much around the Navajo Nation when it's so rural and people are so spread out? Um, I think understanding how the social economic conditions have been developed over over time on the Navajo Nation and our dependency on border towns and on urban areas to access basic necessities would show that even though we're rural, we're very much dependent upon and contributing to urban economies because of the way um, that development has been has been planned out and, and carried out and invested in uh, throughout time in our states. Um, 
And if we're going to if we're going to address these issues and we're going to we're going to look for real change, we have to come together as indigenous and non-indigenous communities to really push for transformative policy that um, ensures everyone has has access to basic rights and basic health necessities and basic educational necessities and job security um, and that we're not we're not allowing um, further discrimination or further inequity through the the disproportionate um, uh, use of resources that are available for a lot of our um, community infrastructure and public public services. So if someone's listening now and they do want to make a difference, they do want to get involved um, with the sustained plan, what is their best way? Is it contacting their governor, contacting their state, you know, their national representatives? How do they do something to assist? I am so proud of the way that our state government has been working to try to get a hold of this very complicated and very, you know, like no one's been trained in how to really respond to a pandemic. But I feel like our state governor has done a lot to stay on top of the latest research. And I think that um, the best thing we can all do is continue to support that. Uh, right now, I know there is a call for applications. Actually, I think it's due today to um, for a racial justice council uh, under the governor's office. I, I suggest people who are very passionate about these issues find opportunities like that to get involved and to help change the direction of, of how these issues are addressed in our, in our communities. Because we're seeing the intersection and the overlapping of a lot of these things coming to a head right now, um, both with racial justice, social economic justice, the um, unique issues faced by indigenous communities. Uh, and so there's a lot of groups that are organizing and that are looking for real policy change that can help um, address the different aspects of these social inequalities. And I, the best thing to do is get involved and to lend your support and lend your voice to these groups um, while also staying on top of uh, and, and naming um, when when voices are being left out of the decision-making process that need to be present. We need to have policy. We need to have solutions that are developed with our most vulnerable at the table, um, helping to make the decisions for what these solutions need to look like. When they're not there, our solutions are going to continue to fall, fall short. And so I, I hope more people take this as an opportunity to get involved in social change. When we're talking about the Navajo and Hopi nations, uh, we're talking about a, a giant area uh, geographically. How hard is it hard hit everywhere? Are we seeing that the Arizona side or the New Mexico side or that the more rural side or is is it a safe blanket that just the, the entirety of the Navajo nation is being just um, overrun with COVID? The, the entire the entire area the entire nation um, and, and you know we're, we're seeing this um, it, in in cities and in other rural areas as well it's been really hard to stay away from your families and from your friends and your loved ones um, and because of like the lack of clear information about asymptomatic carriers and whether or not they spread the virus um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, there's, there was a shift for a little while to, um, 
to start to um, present numbers of how many people tested negative because we didn't want to blow out the blow out of proportion um, the rate and the number of positive cases and wanted to like have that little aspect of hope. Well, that's also worked against us in a lot of ways because some people have walked around thinking that if they tested ne- negative, then they can't get the virus or they're somehow immune or they can't spread it <laughs> inadvertently. And so I think that um, not having appropriate information, um, not not understanding um, how to best educate people about, the, you know, like just all of the unknowns that we still still don't know and that we're still grappling with around how this virus spread permeates throughout our communities has made us all all extremely vulnerable. And I think that uh, if we can if we can just stay on top of the science, if we can stay on top of the research, if we can do more contact tracing, um, and when we can get better educational materials out there and educational information that keep everyone safe, uh, we'll find a way to get a hold of the spread. But as a result of, of not having very much of that in place, are only having, like for example, the contact tracing is only really being rolled out in the last couple of weeks um that this is why everywhere is is being affected um we're not seeing any places that are really isolated from the spread of this virus just due to all of these all of these circumstances and all of these factors we're speaking with janine yazzie she's the new mexico lead coordinator for the navajo and hopi covid relief fund does it make the numbers more difficult to wrap your arms around because the navajo nation um, spreads across state lines because some of those numbers reflect in New Mexico, some of those numbers in Arizona, and even some in Utah. They're all all those three states are carrying a little bit of the numbers. So sometimes it's does it impact looking at that in its totality because of where the reservations lie. Yes, um, that and several other factors as well. Uh, so when you see the Navajo Nation, quote unquote, the official Navajo Nation numbers, they are only counting people who are who have a, a certificate of Indian blood and who have proof of residence on the reservation at the time that they've got tested. Now, th- these are two important things to to take into consideration because only half of a, of our population actually lives on the reservation and there's an unknown number but like because we don't have this data right there's an unknown number of how many people live on the reservation but still maintain p.o boxes and addresses off the reservation for a variety of reasons a lot of our communities don't have their own post offices Um, a lot of our communities uh, a lot of our residents and families they have both an on-reservation home and an off-reservation home and they tend to use their off-reservation home addresses. And so the numbers that we're getting and the parameters by which they're confirmed, quote-unquote, really don't show the true impact of how much of our Navajo population is impacted. Um, for example, I live in Gallup, New Mexico right now. Um, this is my residence. I have to live here because by the nature of my work, I need access to internet. I, I work locally and internationally, and so that's like a critical like need for me to take care of and provide for my family. But my hometown is Lupton, Arizona, just the first the first town just over the Arizona border. And so not only did I have to pick a location, reservation, our, our rural, I had to pick a state 
that would be determined as my my actual residence. And so we still, I still have my, my family at home. We still have our livestock in, in Lupton. We still have a homestead in Lupton, but my, my um, official address is Gallup, New Mexico. And I've lived here for the past five years. So if I were to catch, catch COVID and, and God forbid, uh, an extreme form of COVID that would take my life, I would not actually be counted in the official residence reservation numbers and there and there's countless people like me and so there with with that um with that discrepancy in data like we're not really we don't really know how many of our our enrolled population which is over 350,000 people are actually impacted especially when our when our relatives are relocated and living in a lot of these hot spots around the country in New York and Albuquerque and LA in Phoenix in Phoenix Arizona just to name a few um so there's that factor that's how like that's preventing us from really getting a true sense of what the real impact is. But the other factor is that um, you know we have we have over 300 confirmed deaths on the official Navajo Nation epi- ep- epidemiology website. Um, but the reality is that we have over 500 burial assistance requests that for for deaths that are COVID related, and so um, the 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 discrepancy in the numbers comes in two ways. It comes from the dynamics that I just shared, but also from the fact that people are dying in their home before they're actually getting tested, before um, they're actually uh, confirmed to have symptoms of COVID. And so like, uh, as a result, since we only have two or three um, uh, criminal investigators on the Navajo Nation, I think they brought in a few more. Uh, This is a necessary step to do autopsies on bodies to confirm whether the death is COVID related. Uh, There's a backlog in in our morgues and in our mortuaries of people because we we don't have the workforce to be able to do this. We don't have the, 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 the capacity to do this at the rate that is necessary to determine and confirm whether whether people have passed from COVID or not. So the numbers could be much higher, um, but there, there's, there's just all of these factors that are preventing us from getting that data in real time. Janine Yazzie, the New Mexico lead coordinator for the Navajo and Hopi COVID Relief Fund. The takeaways, if you're listening and you want to do something, get involved and follow, be safe, wear a mask, social distance. That all fair? Yes, uh, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to update us, Janine. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for the opportunity.